All right, First uh, John chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. We've been in a series called The Gospel is Love. Um, we're going to focus really, really aggressively on, on the first uh, three-ish verses. That's kind of where our focus is. Our intent uh, is going to be to to really be fixated on those three things today, just the theology that's found there. And then verses four through 10, we see how John writes to his audience, these churches uh, that are in the area of Ephesus, these churches that are in and around this area that are are growing, and yet they're being kind of, they're being attacked by these people that are there that are saying that Jesus is not who he says he was, that that you, you can just have kind of this moment of salvation or this moment of enlightenment, uh, and you can go on and just live however you want to. The way you live isn't of much consequence. Uh, it's, it's just about this, this being connected to God in this very pseudo-spiritual way. John's going to combat those things in verses 4 through, through 10, but in the first three verses, we really get this amazing picture of the fact that the gospel is love. The gospel is love. So we use the word love for all different types and manners of things, right? Like we're going to go home and we're going to love that, that Josh Allen's going to throw for four touchdowns and rack up a ton of fantasy points for me at noon today, all right? We're going to love that. Richard apparently is a Steelers fan. He's got somebody on the other side. Uh, but here's the deal. We say that we love all kinds of stuff. What does that word love mean? What does it really mean in the context of the scriptures? We're going to get to see a, a, a really helpful picture of that today, specifically as we look into these first three verses. Love is the emotion. It is the posture. It is the very action of God the Father through Christ the Son by the Holy Spirit to us as people, and we're going to see that today. So let's look into 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, and we'll read this together. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, it says this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. 
Um, this passage, really, look in, look, if you have your text before, you look back to verses 28 and 29, and you see John describe him echo this idea of being born, that we are born of him. These believers he writes to are born of God. And John has the practice of in his writings, as he's writing to these churches, these people, to not only kind of give them uh, ability to, to push back against the falsehood, the, the, the false teaching that has come into their presence, but also to affirm and confirm within them, to give them an understanding truly of the righteousness that they have, of the identity that they have in Jesus Christ. He makes very specific certain things about who these people are. I'm the kind of person that needs to be reminded who I am. You're probably like that too. And this is what John seeks to do from the outset, the very beginning of this chapter. All right. So here's what it says. We're going to really break down and look at chapter 3 and verse 1, really kind of phrase by phrase. It says, See... So pay attention to, be directed toward, really take into focus, really take into account. Um, there's, there's kind of some language stuff that even kind of points back to the first chapter. When John presents and describes the gospel of Jesus Christ, he does it in this way. He talks about hearing, that this Jesus is one that, they, that he's heard and that he's seen and that he's looked upon up close and he's even touched. So, so even this language of see here, it's a very simple word. It's just talking about vision, right? It's talking about sight. But there's an echo. There's this place where he's saying, direct your attention in a deeply intentional way to see this. And here's what John wants us to see. He says this, what kind of love the Father has given to us. What kind of love the Father has given to us? Now, what kind is very simple language. I did it better this time. In the first service, I said, what kind? Uh, and, and revealed that I was born in Leeds, or, or I lived in Leeds, Alabama for most of my life. Um, but what kind of love? It just sounds like just simple words to describe this love as different from other loves. Just kind of separate in a different way. It's not the same. There's something that's unique about this love, but maybe it's just distinct because it is its own thing, right? John wants to draw us to this deeper place, and and this is why language is so important. So most weeks, I think everybody realizes that I'm a nerd, all right? That I care very much about words and how they're, how they're said and how they're used. Because with language, especially these writers that have been carried along by God's Spirit, that, that John writing scriptures, he has a very direct intent about what he's saying. So you and I can read what kind, and we can just think it means one of many things. But the most helpful thing to do is to look ultimately at the original text and see what does he mean by this. And here's what we come to find. What kind is not just a type or not just a classification of love, of some kind of love. Here's what it means. It comes from this word that means of what country. Of what country. Okay, so what does that mean? Here's the reality. John is saying that this kind of love is so unlike any other love in the world that it doesn't exist in his world. It is beyond him. It is outside him. He can't fathom. He can't grasp this. Here's what of, 
of, of what country means, it means foreign. It means from outside the place in which he has his deepest residence. It means from outside the place which he exists. This is outside of normality. It's outside of consistency. The love that John is describing is as if it's from another country, as if it's from another world, it's from another place. This is the kind of love that is demonstrated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's this kind of love. It is a foreign love. And every time that this word that means of what country is used, it, it has this connotation. It means that, that the person describing this or saying this is astonished. Absolutely astonished. Now, here's the, the fun thing about having the opportunity to, to preach and spend time with you guys in this capacity. Um, I get to look at your faces. I get to look at your beautiful faces. And there's just one kind of consistent thing that just permeates each service we do, and it's this. Your face is not astonished. It's just not. And it's okay. You just look like this. And I'm with you. I want to go to lunch. I look in the darkest recesses of my heart. I want to preach as short as we can so that we're at home at noon when we kick. All right? I'm not supposed to say things like that. And now that this is on a podcast, I regret that I have. But you're not always astonished, okay? You're not always astonished at God's love. But John says, if you want to experience life, you got to go to the source. And this kind of love is astonishing. It's different than any other love that has ever been known. And he goes on to describe why. Why is this love astonishing? Here's what he says. See what kind of love, see, see from what country this kind of love has come, the Father has given to us. The Father has given to us. Now, if you're like me, you probably grew up with the New International Version, maybe, and so, so you might be more familiar in hearing that see how great a love the Father has lavished upon us. Right? The idea is that this love has been given so deeply and so freely that we had nothing to do with it. That we didn't earn this love. That we could not go woo God into giving us this love. Funny story about me is I'll tell you how I wooed Mia, okay, my wife. We did. Uh, we 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 had a, this great, you know, young professionals here in Birmingham. Maybe not professional, just young. We were young in Birmingham, uh, and and the way that that we got connected. I lived with uh, I lived with a few guys uh, that that I, I went to undergrad at Troy. I lived with a couple guys from uh, went to Auburn uh, and 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 some Troy guys. And then Mia lived with some girls that went. One girl that went to Alabama and a couple other girls, or one girl that went to Auburn, one girl went to Troy. But we all just knew each other. Uh, and so we had just, and then that even grew more. We just had this big group of friends. Uh, and I would tell Mia, hey, we're all going to go, we're going to go grab dinner at Jim and Nick's in Five Points, you know, at six o'clock or whatever. You want to just meet us after work. And then I did not tell her that I told no one else to come. Um, 
And so, so uh, started on a foundation of lies. It's not healthy. I love you, and I'm sorry. Um, but, but there was this wooing. There was this attempt to create relationship. And in every relationship that exists in the entirety of your life, there is some sort of giving and taking and back and forth. And there's a ton of relationships that are totally just transactional. We just exchange goods for services, right? All kinds of things like that. But here's the reality. This love is so foreign because it is given. It's given in a way that you could never earn it. You could never deserve it. In fact, your life constitutes quite the opposite. You deserve, I deserve not to have this love. To not have it. And yet God freely gives it. That's why this love, this gospel is so foreign. And it's so powerful. And then John uses this word that we should be called children of God. Called. So this great astonishing love that is given to us without any good on our part. And then he says we should be called children of God. What does he mean by that? Well, here's the thing. Here's what John means. That when God speaks, it's reality. When God speaks, it's reality. So we, we name things. We call a number of things things, right? Like we have... We have a cat that our girls named Mango, all right? It doesn't look like a mango. It has no fruity smell. He is kind of squishy. I'll give him that. But they named him Mango, all right? Very arbitrary, just wanted to name the cat that. We name all kinds of stuff. Some of us have, have named a car, or some of us have named a boat, or we name and we call a friend something, right? Like we call a friend a nickname because of a story or something that they've done, maybe. Or maybe we just call them something because we're just not very kind and we need to work on that. Um, but look, you need to understand that when John uses a word like call, he's talking about something very specific culturally to this time and this period. So we're talking about very like first century. And so what it means to call someone something doesn't mean to just give them a name, to describe them in such a way that just sets them apart from other people. Calling is much more powerful than that. Because in this time, in this day, when you called someone something... That referenced not just their separation from other people. It referenced the entirety of their identity. To call someone a name was to state who they truly are. Not just on a surface level of a name, but their insides, their guts, everything about them. So when God calls us children, that's what we are. That's reality. We are his children. You might say, no, no, well, I mean, like, yeah, sure, we're, like, we're all God's children, right? Like, well, no, we're not. We're not. 
Insofar as creation, God created us, offspring, yes. But are we his children? Apart from trusting in Jesus Christ and believing the gospel, we are not God's children. Yet because we've believed in, because these people John writes to have believed in, they've trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They vehemently, they firmly, with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, they believe, like a number of us do, that Jesus lived for us in a righteous way. That as this passage says, he was without sin. There's no sin in him. And that he died on the cross On our behalf, he was buried, and then he rose on the third day. He appeared to the twelve, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. When you believe that, by God's Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, something happens. You are transformed. And you're not called a child of God only in name alone. You're called, and it is so. It is actual and it is real. That is the reality in which we live spiritually. John says this. He says, and so we are. Very matter of fact. Very plain. Here is the reality. Um, Look, I'm a person that often feels things that are incongruent with reality. All right? There are days where I wake up and I don't feel like a husband. There are days when I wake up and I don't feel like a father. There are days when I certainly wake up and don't feel like a pastor. All right? Doesn't mean those things aren't reality. It just means in this moment, I don't feel them. I want to give you an example of this. So, so our littlest, Clover, her fourth birthday uh, was the other day. And so my parents came over and we're, we're eating dinner and we're talking. And, and I, you know, I, I kind of asked, I mean, I'm, I'm hitting this like weird middle age, I question everything about my entire existence portion of life, all right? Um, and maybe I've lived in that for forever, but uh, like we all have. Uh, but I, I asked my dad kind of the whole like, hey, you know, how do you, how old do you feel? You know, like when you wake up in the morning, you're going to shave, you look in the mirror, whatever, like how old do you feel? And he took a little bit of offense to this. And he said, I think you meant how young do I feel, but I'm tracking with you. Um, and he literally said, 25. You know, I, I feel like I'm doing, I'm like, hey, this easy, okay? That's, just, that's a little too generous. But that's how he felt. Reality's different. John says, and so we are, because he knows that you and I, that the readers that have read this for centuries, people who have trusted in God and heard and read and experienced and taken in his word, that we are people that have a propensity to live based out of how we feel than what is actual. And this is why something like that Brian's teaching on Wednesday nights is so helpful, this emotionally healthy spirituality so that we would not be controlled only by what we feel, but we would know the truth. John says this because he, he's trying to help his hearers, he's trying to help these believers know this. Like, I wish I knew this at your age. Like, I wish I knew this at your age, that you are who God says you are, not how you think or what you feel about yourself when you wake up in the morning. That you are more than the sum of your actions yesterday. You are who God says that you are. 
He wants to assure them. He wants to let them know that the gospel has taken root. And this is not a thing among other things. This is this foreign thing that has entered their world and changed them in total. God has the final say about who we are. Have you ever tried to tell someone that you love them and they just like can't believe you? They can't believe it. They can't accept it. They can't receive it. Have you ever been on the receiving end of someone telling you that you're loved? And you just are like, no, you don't understand. I can't, I can't receive that. I can't have that. I don't, I don't deserve that. It's not okay. Here's the reality. I look out at a room full of people, and you're who God says you are. Like Mia can't make me stop loving her. She could say all day long, well, I'm not loved by you. But if I'm doing it, if I'm living out the action, you're loved. You can't change that. You don't get to say who you are to me. I get to say that. And there's something much more deeply profound about the fact that the God who created the universe, who literally breathed it into existence, does the same thing verbally with us and says, I've called you my child. This is who you are. That's how we get astonished. When we go to the scriptures, when we preach the gospel to ourselves, when we believe this, that's how we get astonished. And it's this giant cycle of believing the gospel in such a way that we preach it to ourselves, we hear it, and now we step into the reality of taking God at his word and believing him because he's God. And no matter what I wake up and think about myself or, or the sin that I committed yesterday or the thing that I said or the thing that I've done, that does not change the reality. I need to confess. I need to repent. All right? We're going to bypass that part. But it doesn't change the reality of who we are. That's the kind of love that changes your life and mine. There were so love that it's foreign. It's like it's from a different place. Uh, look at the back half of verse 1 uh, and it says this. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Speaking of Jesus. So here's the reality. The life of the believer John says the person that believes this, the person that embraces this, the person that has yielded and trusted Jesus, with everything, will be unrecognizable to the world. The world won't know them. Now, you might say, look, that's not true because I work with, I know of, I I live in community with, I experience, I've got a neighbor who, like, all these people are not, they, they don't know Jesus. They're worldly, and I know them, and they know me. And I would argue to say, no, that is not true. They don't know the very heart of you. They don't know the reality of what it means to have union with Christ. Because they've never been astonished. They've never experienced the depth of the reality of the gospel. And you have a relationship with them, and y'all are kind of like you know that weird Wilson guy on Home Improvement back in the day. He's kind of the over-the-fence guy, right? Like, like We have a lot of these fences in our neighborhoods. You guys know this. Um, Millie does this to our neighbor all the time. I think it drives them nuts, but apparently they still love her. Um, Look, just, hey, how's it going over there, right? You can have that with someone. 
But you can't know the world. How do we know that? Look back into chapter 1 and what, what we talked about from the beginning. Chapter 1 and verse 4, John describes the fellowship that we have with one another in the Father and the Son. That's the basis for Christian relationship. The community that we have is not, is not about our locale. It's not about my proximity from my house to your house. It's not about the fact that our kids go to school together. The relationship that we have is truly founded on the reality that we have deep union with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And so John is preparing to instruct them about how to live, and he says, look, it's going to be different. It's going to look different. The world is not going to understand or know you because of the way you live, because they didn't understand, they didn't know, they didn't experience Jesus Christ himself. And look at verse 2. It says this. It's kind of the shift from what is right now in this moment to what will be in the future. It's present and future language. Uh, he says, we are God's children now. So this is the present reality. We are God's children. This is fact. This is not a name in some sort of way that would be, oh, that's encouraging, that's kind, or that's comforting. No, this is reality, and this is what life is now. You exist in such a way that the present reality, this moment, if you've trusted in Christ, we are God's children right now. Paul would describe it in this way in Colossians, right? He would say that we are hidden with Christ in God. That's not something that will be. That's something that is right now in this moment. But that's not all. There's deep hope for the future. He uses this language. He says, what we will be has not yet appeared. So John, in a very healthy way, says, look, I, I don't know what the future is going to look like. I don't know exactly what the future that we are living towards looks like. But I do know this. I do know this. He tells believers that when Jesus appears, that we will be like him. That we will be like him. What does that mean? What does it mean that we'll be like him? Two very specific verses that I think really help draw this out. You look at the passage in Romans 8, this context where, context rather, where Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God's plan has been that, that, that we're predestined, that we are going to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And this is 2 Corinthians 3, 18. It says this, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So that Lord, Jesus, we are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. How does it happen? For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So it's by God's Spirit that this happens. So John says, this is how profound your new life is. It's not just that, that sin is, is gone away. It's not just that you stopped doing some things that are, that are indicative of poor or bad behavior. It's not this. It's that you have been made new, 
that you've been transformed, that you've been moved from a dominion of darkness, as Paul would say, into a kingdom of light, that you are a new creation, and that has come because God has loved you so astonishingly with his foreign love that he's transformed you by his spirit because you believed in Jesus Christ. This is wild. Not only that, he says, you're going to be like Jesus. You're going to be like him. Oh, so like we're going to have, you know, we're going to share some common interest. Or, you know, he drafted Josh Allen too because he's Jesus. He had first pick. No. You're going to be like him. Essence, nature, there's this transformative thing that's happening by God's spirit. Why does John do all of this stuff? Why does he give them all of this? Look, here's all this really astounding, astonishing, deep understanding, in many ways, of the mind of God and his purpose for the life of believers. Why does John do that? One, he's communicating the truth of God to them. But as we're going to see in these next set of verses, in, in, in 3 through 10, and we'll work on quickly, but the reality is, is that these are not just theological things that John presents. And he says, think about this stuff. Have a good day. There's an ethical component. If we believe in the gospel, if we understand the love that God has for us, it yields a response. There's something that we have to do. There's something that we can't not do. This gospel changes us. It transforms us, and so it does it in our daily life. You and me, the daily lives that we live. The daily lives that we live at your work, in your home, at your school. These things should be happening. And here's what John says. Look at verse 3. He says, Everyone who hopes in him, who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. So there's a natural cause and effect that we see. Everything, everyone who hopes in him, if, that, if that's the thrust, then, then this thing happens where we purify ourselves. Well, what do these words mean? The first thing we got to do is talk about the reality that the, the action that comes, this purification, is based on hope. Hope is the reason for this. Everyone who hopes thus, who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. So first got to understand what hope is. Here's what hope is, all right? The, the biblical writers in the New Testament scriptures and the canon, when, when hope is spoken of, it is typically used to mean confident expectation. It means a reality that, that is believed in that is, that is just not seen yet. So it's true, and it is coming true. It just has not come true in its fullness Right? So this is a Hebrews 11.1 kind of thing. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, but certain of what we don't see. We're not less certain of it because we don't see it right now. We're certain of it. We just don't see it in its fullness. So there's a reality component of this. This hope is something that, that is confident expectation. Right? But we don't use hope that way. We use hope in this like, wishy-washy, wishful thinking kind of way. Right? Like, 
like, all right, so, you know, Auburn scored 60 the last two weeks, right? So my thing is I told a bunch of dudes, like, hey, this is great. I, we're going to score 60 next week. We're going to beat Penn State. We're going to roll them up because what we do is we score 60 every week. It's our new thing. I love it. I'm a huge fan of this. It feels like we've always been supposed to put points on the scoreboard. Um, but, but look, this is the reality. That's wishful thinking, okay? Now, look, it would be it would be killer if we go in home 60 at Happy Valley. But that, look, I, I don't expect that to happen, and you don't either. Um, but look, that's just hopeful. It's just wishful thinking. That's not, that's not the kind of hope that the Bible talks about. It's not that I hope it doesn't rain. I hope we don't get sick. I hope he'll wrap it up pretty quick, right? Like, that's, that's, that's not, and I'm trying, I promise. But that's, that's not the hope the scriptures talk about. The hope the scriptures talk about is this confident expectation of what's to come. And because we believe that we'll be transformed into the image of God, it causes us to live in this way. We live a life of purity. We sang it together. It's beautiful. Holy, holy, holy. Perfect in power. And what? In love and purity. These two things exist together. They're meant to be synonymous. That where there is love, there is purity. So what is this purity that John's talking about? He's not talking about some sort of ceremonial washing. He's not talking about an act where we do this thing and we get clean. He's talking about the life that we live, the character that God is developing and transforming inside us. It's about living in a way that is morally pure. Not because we're trying to be good. No, because goodness has come and loved you and saved you, and you can't help but be good. That's the difference. It's that purity, that purity that runs parallel to love. And look at verse uh, 4. You see this. John's going to take these next few verses, and he's going to really describe and kind of get to the crux, the end of what it means for those people to be children of God and those who are not. Um, so you're going to see all this language, and you've read it once already, but look down into verse 4 through 10. If you have your scriptures before you, you can see these words, sin and lawlessness and righteousness and the devil. Here's what John is doing. He's speaking to this current moment, because look, here's the reality. There are these groups of people, different pockets of people. Here's who they are. Some are called Gnostics. Okay, Gnostics are the people that they have kind of this divine enlightenment. They had this moment with God. Some are cessationists or, or, or secessionists rather who have said, hey, Jesus was, was divine from the moment that he was born till the cross. But, but apart from that, beyond that, he's not divine. He's just a man, a spiritual man, a man among many men. He's not the very son of God. You've got all these people who are saying, who are believing all of these things and John describes it as it amounts to lawlessness. What does that mean? Well, here's the reality. When you think of the word law, you and I think of breaking a law. We think of legal things, right? We think about jurisdiction, and we think about statutes of limitations, and we think about things that, that incur a penalty, like, like, like a fee or like jail time. That's what we think of when we think of law. That is sometimes, but not always, how the New Testament is describing, and the Old Testament in particular is describing law. Here's what law means. You look back into Deuteronomy, you look back into the Torah, the, the, the earliest part, the Pentateuch, the earliest part of the canon, law, that word law, it means teaching. So this is actually harder, a harder word than law. Why would you say, well, teaching can't be harder than law. That's just instruction. Oh, but if it's God's instruction, it's much harder. It's much harder. 
So sin is not like breaking a law, like I did this thing and then I pay this penalty and it's okay. Sin at its core is lawlessness. It's rebellion against the teaching of God. It is rebellion against the life, the the love-filled life that God has for us. That's what sin is. It's not a mess-up. It's not a mistake. It's not a boo-boo. It is that I have rebelled against the God of the universe that's created me for love and a relationship with him. I've turned against that, and I've found a better way. Put it in those terms, it sounds pretty stupid. I mean, I don't really look at myself as got a better way. And yet I will fall into that trap of temptation to believe, to think that there's something more than this. That's sin. It's rebellion against God's law. And look, here's what we see. The purpose, look in verse 5. You know that he appeared, this is Jesus, in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So two really important components to this verse. One, you get the echo of John's gospel. Chapter 1, verse 29, there's this profound phrase. Jesus is seen. What does John say? Behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sins of the world. This is the purpose, John describes, that Jesus has come. To restore creation to that which honors God, which follows his teaching, which loves his law. That law that now becomes delight to us, to people who have trusted him So you see the purpose, and then you see the reality of what we're being transformed into, what we're called to be. It says, and in him there is no sin. So there's a couple other passages. Chapter 3, verse 3, it says he is pure. You look down in verse 7, it says he is righteous. Here's the thing about Jesus. Sinlessness was not his condition on earth. It wasn't from the time that he is born to the time that he is crucified and then resurrection. That's not the period of sinlessness in which Jesus lived. We, we know this and we say this and I will say Jesus has lived a sinless life. But here's the reality. There is no sin in him and that is present language. There's never sin in Jesus. There never has been. There never will be. This is the likeness. This is the image that we are being transformed into. And so John calls us to be participating in that, to live into that reality by God's Spirit. He says this, The Christian is not the one who keeps on sinning. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And look, and, and look young folks hear this too, uh, because I, I've, I've, I used to read 1 John, and it was moments of spiritual bliss this incredible, astonishing love that he has for us. And then every other verse, it seems like throughout a number of these passages, it says, it says nobody who keeps on sinning knows God. And you're like, hold on, I just sinned a minute ago. This is a tough spot I'm in. Right? Well, how do we, what, do we, what do we make of this? What do we make of this language that says no one keeps on sinning? What does John mean by that? Anybody in here sin recently? Just me. All right, a couple of us. Um, here's the deal. It keeps on sinning. Has ever known God? What does that mean? What, what do you say about the Apostle Paul? He says, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do. 
That's the life that we live. That's that Romans 7 tension. What does this mean that, that no one who keeps on sinning is God's child? Here's what it means. Think back to chapter 1 and verse 8. He's reaching out. He's talking to a group of people who, who have been confronted by these that say they don't have sin. All these people that think that they've had this enlightened moment, they say they don't have sin. Remember chapter 1 and verse 8? If we say that we have no sin, then we are liars. We're liars. So what this passage is about, what these verses are about, this is not saying that if if you sin again, that, that you don't know God, that you don't have a relationship with God. What it means is, is that those who live a life that is primarily characterized by sin, that that's your habit, that's the way in which you consistently live, then you don't know God, and you're not his child. And I would say, in some ways, it's as easy as this. If you are convicted of sin, and you're drawn to confession, confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, if that is the kind of heart that we have, that is evidence that you are God's child. If you live in such a way where you're like, what is sin? I don't think that I sin. I'm not a sinner. That's indicative that you're not God's child. It it truly is. And so John wants to help his people, these believers, draw this distinction. He's pleading with them. He's begging them to see. Look at verse 7. He says, little children, this is those, those words of affection and love. He says, let no one deceive you. He's saying, don't be deceived by these people who said, I had this moment, and now I just kind of live however I want to. And that might sound weird or strange to you, like, well, that's not really this context. That's not really our time and place, to which I would say, you're nuts. This is, the, this is the, what it looks like to live in the world. People say, well, I like, I, you know, yeah, I walked an aisle, or I, I was baptized at an early age, or I did this thing. You know, I had this moment. But for John, the gospel is present reality and the future to come, not just some moment in the distant past. Belief in the gospel has implications that we're called to live in it now in a way that reflects the very goodness of God. Verses uh, 8 and 9. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. It's talking about origin, the reality that that we are not all just like in a very kind of flowery and nice and happy and we don't want to ruffle any feathers kind of way. Like, oh, we're all God's children. No, we've been created. We've been created in his image. But in our sin, that image has become marred and we have to be restored through Jesus Christ. He calls us children when we trust in him, when we believe in the gospel. So look down again in verse 9. He kind of echoes, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Look, we're made new. There's this new nature, this new transformation that's been taking place that is truly changing us. We're being changed by God's spirit. And then verse 10 By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is how you know if you're God's child. Do you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in Jesus? Do you believe the gospel? 
And then, are you living in righteousness? Are you living in the gospel reality? In fellowship with other believers, you're living in such a way where your character is being changed, it's being transformed. You're abiding with Jesus and you're becoming new. And then finally, talks about nor is the one who does not love his brother. We live out the gospel. We live in such a way where, where we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, where we love our neighbor as ourselves, where we care about others. This is just uh, candidly. Look, I, like, I think most people that know me, I'm not a confrontational person. I'm just not. Like, I don't, I don't want us to fight about it. And if we do, I, I kind of want you to win. I, typically. That's just like kind of the person that I am, just wired that way, all right? Here's the deal. This is confrontational stuff. This is very black and white. Um, I do not presume to know the hearts of any, the heart of, rather, any person in this room. I don't know if you have truly believed the gospel of Jesus Christ or not. I've got a pretty good idea because I know a number of you and I've, I've seen how you live, how you love. But I would just urge you in the most genuine way that I can. And I would say, like John says it, but I don't say this in like a demeaning or belittling way, like you're littler than me, but I would say it to myself even. Little children, people that I care about, that I, that I love. Ask yourself this morning, do you believe the gospel? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? And if you have not, and yet you feel like that is happening, the Spirit is working on you, in a few moments we're going to have an opportunity for a time of invitation, and I, I want you to come. And look, I said this in the first service, I get it. Like, the, like Church is not, in so many ways, not like what it was when I was growing up. Like, How many of you trusted Christ in a, in, a, in, in a profession of faith like you walked down an aisle in a church to some degree? All right, a number of us. I just want to be really candid with you. If that is how you, you want to come to know Christ and that's how you want to come and talk and pray and we can walk through that together, I love that. If you don't want to do that, like please come find me afterwards. Please text me or call me, right? Or send me home with one of your children. And this weekend, I won't even know the difference um, <laughs> because we have so many kids in our house. But look, I'm just I, get connected to one of us, to myself, to Brian, to Paxton, to Richard, to Joe, um, our staff, our elders. We, we want to help you experience and know this love that God has, has given to you, that he has for you, if you'll receive it. Um, so, all right, three things to do. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and ask our worship team to go ahead and come on up, and, and I'll make these quick. Um, what do we do? What do you do with a text like this? What do you do with these 10 verses? Three very simple things. The first thing is this. Go and be astonished at the love God has for you. And that might sound wild. Like, Michael, how do I go and how do I go and be astonished? How do I go look at this love? Here's what you do. Go preach the gospel to yourself. Have your lovely husband or wife preach the gospel to you. Go preach that gospel to your child tonight. Tell your sweet child before you go to bed tonight that God loves them so much that he gave what is as precious to him as that child is to you so that you could have life. Go do that with your family and be astonished. 
and see the love that God has for you. The second thing, walk and live, go live in purity. That might sound hard too. What do you mean go live in purity? I mean live in such a way where you're looking at, you're assessing, you're continually seeking, am I living out the very character of Jesus Christ? Am I being transformed into him? What does that mean? What does that look like? Look, I think it starts here. Like we have community, we build community. with I've got people in this room that I've, I confess my sin to. That I tell them about my brokenness, my sinfulness, and they pray for me. And it causes me to recognize and once again be astonished by love and say, you know what, I'm going to go trust God. And here's the third thing. Look, don't believe the lies that the world tells you that character doesn't matter. That what we do doesn't matter. That you you prayed a prayer, you, you did that thing, you were baptized. There was some sort of ceremonial thing that you did. And so now you just kind of go and live however you want to. The enemy wants to tell you that today, that life outside of the feelings, the things that you're experiencing that God is potentially doing in your heart and life in this moment, that it just doesn't matter. Just, just you know, go back to church next week, but like, you know, live the rest of your life however you want. Don't do that. Don't believe that lie. Because the reality is when you go and live in purity, when you go and allow God to transform you by his spirit and, and your character changes, the cycle happens again and you're going to come even more astonished with his love and you're not going to be able to help but to go love God and love your neighbor. Um, but we're going to take a moment uh, and just have a time to, to look to ourselves. Um, or even maybe your family, you want to have some conversation in this moment. There's, there's no rules. You don't have to stand. You don't have to sit. You don't have to sing. You can sing if you want to at the top of your lungs or not sing at all. You can think. You can meditate. In this moment, I would urge you to be astonished by God's love. To the best of your ability, hear and believe the gospel. And let it change you from the inside out. Let it change you. Um, and we're going to sing this incredible song. And look, you heard it last week, and Brian did such a phenomenal job of communicating the reality of, of, of the two lives that, that we've lived, and we've likely all lived in both. We've been this elder brother, we've been this prodigal. And we get this picture of one who, who returns home, who runs home who goes to his father. And the beauty of the gospel is that even in the midst of that story, we realize that the father's come to us. The father has come to us in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, so that we could know him. Um, so I would encourage us in these moments to, to lean in, to ask God to minister to us, to meet us, uh, and to change us from the inside out. Let's pray together. God, we long to run to you. God, we long to be astonished by the love that you have for us. Father, in this moment, on a day, and just a time, um, Father, where we worship together, Father, I confess that I want to feel it more. I want to know it more. I want to experience it more. Um, God, would you cause us to be astonished by your love, to see how far and outside of us it is, and for it to change absolutely everything, the way that we look to this world. Um, 
God, ultimately so that that world would look at you and be astonished by love and be changed, to be transformed, to believe your gospel, to live in your gospel, to live out your gospel. So we ask that you would, you would do these things in this moment, in this time, in our hearts together. In Christ's name, amen.